Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and I'm delighted, as usual, to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Hello there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion over 1994's New Nightmare. Yes, it's a Wes Craven nightmare on Elm Street, and it does feel good to be saying that again. It does. So, you know, I, I'm i increasingly grateful for your suggestion many, many moons ago, because it's been a while for us to work through this franchise, that we, mm-hmm. that we work our way through the, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, because this is the first time that I've seen all of them sequentially with the intention of watching them as a franchise. Me too. Same as well. Yeah, and so your point is so correct, right? Like, I'd seen uh, A New Nightmare, or sometimes called Wes Craven's A New Nightmare before, but I I hadn't seen it after having seen the ones that he wasn't a part of, right? That Craven wasn't a part of. And you're so yeah. right. It feels so markedly different, and in this case, for the better, right? To have Craven back where he belongs uh, giving us the story, literally, figuratively, in the story world, out of the story world, doing it all. Uh, that, that's where that's where he belongs in the Elm Street franchise. And we will get into this, I am sure, more in our more detailed discussion at the end, where we do a big retrospective back on the whole franchise. But I, I think even now, I, at seven films in, I'm I'm ready to harbor a bit of a a bit of a hypothesis is that there are two tiers of nightmare films, and those are those by or with Wes Craven and those without Wes Craven. And so in one tier, you've got Nightmare One, you've got Dream Warriors, and you've got New Nightmare that uh, either he has written, directed, and helped on, or in the case of Dream Warriors, he just wrote the script. And then there are those films without Wes Craven two, four, five, and six, in which there can be good fun moments, but they are not the same nightmare movies. No, they're really not. And knowing that one of the things we're going to do after we finish our franchise, which we have a couple more films to get through, um, is that you and I are going to be asked to to rank the films in order of preference. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that. And what you said is so astute, because as I'm thinking about my rankings, it really is very much affected by by Craven's hand because I don't think we can praise him enough for one of the things that he does better than maybe any other horror person that I can think of and that is that he he understands horror as a concept and is able to make that that idea what horror is a really fascinating premise Right, I mean, that's the mm-hmm. whole premise of, of the Scream franchise. Of course, that's a huge part of, of the Nightmare films. I mean, many people call this film the the precursor or the prelude to Scream, which would come out 
within the next year or two after this, I can't remember if it was one year or two, but it was right after this. So it's clearly this meta contextual idea of what it means to be a horror film was on Wes Craven's mind when making this. And then he did it again with Scream yes. in a different way, but it's similar ideas at play. And he could only do this after having given us some of the defining films, right? Like Last House mm-hmm. on the Left. And yep. you know, I mean, he helped build the tropes. And then he said, well, let's let's analyze these and, and let's analyze these as creators and also as consumers. And, you know, of course, that reach its, reaches its pinnacle in the Nightmare um, franchise in, in this one, in New Nightmare. But you can see this all along because Craven mm-hmm. knows that if you do it right, you can have an incredibly fluid and sort of ambivalent document and and it will be the more powerful for being able to have these these multivalent ways of being read. I think where the other nightmares suffered is that they were just messy, right? So instead of being fluid, mm-hmm. they were just messy um, and not always to their to their success. Yeah, and it's really clear that Wes Craven has a lot that he wants to actually unpack and he has themes that are important to him and which you know it sounds like just like the bare minimum for making going in and making a film but it has been missing from the past three nightmare films it's just like they forgot that the genre of horror can be used effectively to communicate an argument where and Wes Craven brings us back to that point he has clear arguments about whether or not horror is good for us as a society what the nature of horror is, why we watch horror, the power that it has. And all of those ideas are core, not only to the character arcs, but the stories themselves. And that is deeply, deeply refreshing uh, in a way that the past three nightmares just haven't been. I've been seeing this for a while, but I I remain sort of flabbergasted. And I realized that, you know, since we started our journey, it's only been a few months. So it's not like this could have been fully rectified. But I remain rather flabbergasted by how little scholarship exists beyond the first film in the franchise and the second film, but more specifically the second film is a, is a queer text as opposed to like a, a real deep dive of it as a piece of the, the franchise. Um, yeah. And then, of course, there's stuff on the remake, uh, the 2010 film. But well, there's. Why? Well, <laughs> never so, mind. No, I'm not going to question it. So, Go ahead. But a lot of. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good question. Like, why that one? And it ends up being because a lot of people are talking about what, in its sort of slickified version, the 2010 film loses that is inherent to the to the original. So so they're rarely like saying that this is the film, only film we should be talking about. Although I will tell you, I was on social media yesterday mm-hmm. and I did see someone say that. I don't know why they were talking about it, but they were like, you know what film was maybe one of the best ones of an o- only okay franchise? And they were like, the 2010 Nightmare. And I was like, okay. Oh my God. I can't. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that in another yeah. episode. Yes. <laughs> so... So there's not a lot of scholarship, right? There's not not a no. lot of scholarship, particularly on three, four, five, and six, um, which I think is is kind of understandable. So when I was looking for for what we could use as our theoretical frame, some stuff did come up specifically on New Nightmare, and it was all sort of from mm-hmm. the idea of thinking about meta horror, right? Meta narratives, and also just this this trend in Hollywood and and in the eighties and nineties, there were a lot of films that were doing this, um, including the delightfully horrible Arnold Schwarzenegger film, uh, The Last Action Hero, right? So all mm-hmm, these films that course. were doing this, that were Hollywood films were saying, let's talk about Hollywood, right? Like, or let's take 
the diegetic world, the story world of, of our film, and let's in, let's make it feel like it's non-diegetic, like it's the real world, and, and so you, we have a lot of manipulation of that. So the scholarship that's out there is really more about those ideas, and then and here's how New Nightmare does it in relationship to other things. So the two articles that I, I want to, to reference in particular, one comes from a gentleman named Frank uh, Pillip, and uh, the title is Crane. Fun name. Yes. <laughs> two Ps. Uh, actually, three Ps total. Two Ps at the end. Um, and the article is called Creative Incest, Cross and Self-Referencing in Recent Hollywood Cinema. Good title, too. It is. And it also reminds me of one of the pieces of scholarship we talked about uh, for Nightmare on Elm Street, the 1984 film, right, which made this argument that I'm still not entirely sure I'm willing to buy that yeah. uh, the relationship between... Nancy and her father was a sort of like incestuous thing. I, 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 as much as it intrigues me, it is always just wacky to hear how much there are certain parts of the horror community that just love the incest parts yeah, of horror I just... and just insist that it's everywhere. I'm like, can we, can, can it just not take a break for like yes. two seconds? Yes. When in doubt, it's always incest. It really is. Said some Hollywood horror writer, probably. <laughs> I'm so glad you attributed that statement um, so that it's not like, says Anthony Tresca. No, um, no, not from me. Uh, Def, please do not take that out of context. I am begging you, yeah, Internet. Please. So, Philip talks about the, the fact that, that Hollywood is, is obsessed with itself um, and, and that, you know, from more or less the beginning, we've had these films that are about, that are Hollywood's version of Hollywood. And, mm-hmm. you know, Singing in the Rain is a really good example. And, and it's a film that, that even as it's like, yeah, maybe it's not perfect. It's also saying, but isn't this the romantic dream that you want? Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, then like films like La La Land. I, I was going to say, yeah, now we're doing it again. But now we're doing it in the more realistic space. You have like things like Birdman and right. La La Land going and like being awards contenders with this same basically, honestly, meta deconstruction that is present in New Nightmare, as I imagine this author is about to make the argument that that is the case. Yeah, and, you know, I I agree with you particularly about Birdman um, being mm-hmm. sort of more gritty, but, you know, for all of La La Land's attempts to, to be the, quote, more realistic version of Hollywood, it's still at the <laughs> end of the day, you know, yes, the the main couple may not get together, spoiler, um, but wow. yeah, who would I have mean, thought that yeah. we would have gotten to La La Land on our horror podcast? I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'm sorry for anyone that wasn't anticipating that. But but it's still she becomes highly successful. He becomes mm-hmm. highly successful. There's never any traffic in Hollywood. Right? Like it's still the sort of romanticized version of things. And so uh, Philip is talking about the ways that that by having it be a horror text, we can we can begin to to question not just the artifice of of the construct of mm-hmm. storytelling, but also kind of whether or not that's like a terrifying thing. And so he talks about the fact that there are moments, particularly when we have Heather, as she stepped into the role of Nancy, reading the yeah. script and we're hearing the voiceover, and he says that this creates a, an alienating effect as the movie mm-hmm. literally stops to reflect on itself in an ironic manner, even denies its own fictitiousness. There was no movie. Encouraging the viewer to do the same and recognize the artistic playfulness of the story script. 
And he also talks about just the, the fact that by setting it in Hollywood, it's doing a couple of things. One, it's Craven's opportunity to sort of be like, but isn't the real monster Hollywood, right? Because when he first mm-hmm. describes and he's like, it's this entity that's been around forever and it steals our innocence and our creativity. And then Nancy's like, do you mean Freddy? And he's like, yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, it's not hard yeah. to, to read that yeah. as him being like, no, it, it's the studio that ruined my franchise for the mm-hmm. last several films. I mean, he's not, ex- he, he does not pull those punches. No. He is, he is very, very very mean to certain films within this franchise particularly i would say the sixth film uh freddy's dead which we'll we will get to uh, because he certainly does oh he most certainly does and and the last thing that um philip talks about but he i wish he would have elaborated on this further Mm -hmm. um again is this idea of of it shows us that everything in hollywood the roles that people play the the sort of like relationships that we have all of it is really performative and and what he doesn't say but I, I wish he had is that for me some of the most surreal scenes the ones that felt most actually like the the town in six right that was like this weird like is this a real place is it not I don't know what's happening were the the scenes that were happening quote in the real world but in Hollywood right it was the mm-hmm. stuff on the studio set when they're walking along and there's a clown behind them juggling and that's truly like just normal or that they surprised her um, at that interview uh, with Robert England showing up, like all of these kind of things, right? Just really reinforce just how how performative it is. And I found those scenes in some ways to be more disturbing because they were supposed to be reality, right? And they weren't mm-hmm. supposed to be the terrifying thing, but that's what made them so terrifying. Or such as like those the stalking that Heather yes. was enduring. Yeah, and everyone's just like, hee hee. And she's like, yeah. no, it's not. And so there's so much... Yeah, that's such a good that's such a good example. There's so much about this film that is like maybe the scariest things are these things that we have said are not dreams but reality. Um, but they're mm-hmm. they're more wild than anything we could possibly interpret. The the other article I want to mention, which I, I don't want to discuss too too much because I want to start talking with you about it, but it's yeah. it just kind of caught my attention. So it's by a gentleman named uh, Guillermo Rodriguez Romaguera. Oh, lots of you're bringing lots of good names on. I know, this podcast I know, today. and I'm I'm certain <laughs> that I probably slaughtered both last names. But his article, it's so interesting. He's arguing that Wes Craven's A New Nightmare mm-hmm. has a lot of similarity to Don Quixote, the the Spanish uh, epic about oh, you know the gentleman and the windmills yeah, and the yeah. windmills, of uh-huh. course. And he and says, is it Sancho? Is this, yes, is this the, yeah. the sidekick? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, and so Rodriguez Romaguera argues that, that you know, we may look at a film like A New Nightmare or some of the other films that are coming out that are sort of these self-referential and be like, oh, this is just, you know, Hollywood being Hollywood or this is just sort of meaningless garbage and, you know, it'll quickly be replaced. And he's like, but you know what? They're, they're doing the same thing that makes Don Quixote a a text that continues to be worth studying hundreds of years later. And so he talks about the fact that, you know, the both texts ask us to ask, what does it mean to be a hero? And mm-hmm. what does it mean to play a hero? And, you know, in Heather's case, to play Heather playing Nancy. So right. just this, this, this issue of performance and, and um, heroism and also the significance of storytelling and the joy. Both narratives are sort of like, I couldn't come up with any ideas so I'll just tell you this one little thing that's 
and, you know, uh, Craven's uh, case came to me in a dream. And mm-hmm. just, it's a really interesting comparison. So those are the two that came up. That's a good comparison. That's deeply interesting. It to, is. It's another, I mean, I feel like Craven would approve of that label. Uh, yeah. It, it, it seems to fit. And I, I see, that's a really interesting argument. It really is. Because, again, to going back to Craven, what he did was, is he said, okay, what is it that make the dreams so interesting? They're elusive. They're mm-hmm. difficult to pin down. They're so right. subjective. No one quite believes you when you share them. And and he was like, okay, well, how how can I paint that onto the real world? Like, in what ways are our nightmares similar to things we experience in the real world? Like stalkers, like mm-hmm. having a spouse who doesn't doesn't listen to you when you're saying something's wrong or the the hysterical mother role right right? where she's like something is wrong with my child and they're like so you've been mistreating him yes and she's like no so there's just so much of it that i think beautifully transferred in this text and it's a really interesting nightmare film because you don't really get to see a lot of the nightmare there's in this one until basically the third act of the film yes which is a unique departure for nightmare films to place the nightmares more in the real world than in the dream world explicitly. And even you could even make the argument that once we get to the, the third act, it's still if they've taken the nightmares of that were used to be confined to the dreams and brought them into the real world. And so it's still always every nightmare you see is only a nightmare in the real world, which is a v- uniquely different message than any of the other nightmare yes. films. And it's fun to see that there is still a new way to spin what nightmares can look like, how they're presented to us, and what they can mean. Because these, particularly, that was what made the first several nightmares interesting. Nightmare One had a very different view of dreams and nightmares. All three of the first ones, uh, first three did. And then it's now interesting to see another take on what that is. Yes. What I love is that even though we get this fresh take, we're still getting some of what you and I felt were some of the stronger elements of one, two, and three in particular, and that is the institutional critique, right? So mm-hmm. it's still giving us a new lens of, of thinking about nightmares, but it's also reminding us that there are these institutions that we believe have been crafted to help us, um, hospitals, right. police forces, and to to a lesser extent, Hollywood, right? Because we don't think of Hollywood as, as like a a service in the same way we do hospitals, but we expect Hollywood to have our best interests in mind, right? I, ideally, yeah. Ideally, right? Like Ideally, we yes. do. Which is why we're always so constantly disappointed when we're like, oh, so-and-so was a scumbag? And it's like, well, of course they were, because absolute power corrupts absolutely. But like, we're still surprised, right? Really naively as a culture, because we still expect Hollywood to, to be there for us. And this film just sort of says, you know, institutionally speaking, let's talk about which groups of people are going to be not protected. And and the answer is any group that you would fall into. It's the exact group of people who you, who is always not protected by institutions. Yes. It's women, it's uh, any, it's other marginalized groups. It, those are, and particularly in this one, it feels very interested in discussing uh, the final girl as something that needs to be deconstructed and it's really raising the question of why does our society create final girls? What does it do? And it feels much more akin to the conversation. I'm 
shocking to me that this movie came out in 1994 because it feels much more akin to the conversations that we're having in 2021 about final girls than it did about the conversations that were happening in the 90s until I guess Scream. So I mean, Wes Craven seemed to basically introduce this idea of talking about and deconstructing final girls because I loved what happened, what got to happen here with Heather, where we get to see Heather's real world horrors that she's having to deal with because of the entertainment industry. And those were real. That happened. She did go, she switched to a more TV route and she was stalked and just constantly harassed by fans in the real world. Wild and it me. was, yeah, this is a, th- it's another theme that got explored in another, in a, book about final girls uh, that came out this year, the final girls support group by Grady Hendrix. And that that's exactly what I mean. It seems to be addressing these very similar things that we all acknowledge and understand happens to famous women, particularly famous women in the horror genre. But it's always, it, that's never thought of as the horror for some reason when it's like, that's clearly horrifying and this is bad and we have failed these women that we have propped up and exploited yes and now we're just gonna let them out to dry or in worse sometimes we're gonna shame them for getting worked up about it and considering this a big deal which is exactly what does happen in this film that came out in the 90s that is that's an incredibly profound comment that you just made and and i just i want to acknowledge what you're saying because you are absolutely correct. What what this film is giving us is not just a new spin on on a franchise; it is acting as a as a trailblazer uh, for the yeah. genre. About fifteen years um, before everyone else figured that out. So you know we have this, and then we have Scream, and then and then for a while it was like, okay, well, well that kind of broke the model. What we do do we do next? And and then we eventually start to get to like Cabin in the Woods, which. Or in the mm-hmm. Cabin in the Woods, which which is also giving us a model of like who do we craft as these characters and why. Um, but you're absolutely correct that it really is only in 2020, 2021 that we've begun to say with with books like Hendrix's The Final Girl Support Group, with Stephen Graham Jones's uh, My Heart Is a Chainsaw, and several of these other texts. But also, like you said, this movement that we are having now, where uh, I saw something the other day that was it was like a meme, but it. Uh, so I don't know where it originated, but it was like, mm-hmm. I want to make the following apologies. And I was like, I want to apologize to Britney Spears for making fun of her when she was going through mental health issues. I want to, and it kind of went through the list. And one of them was Megan Fox. And it was like, I want to mm-hmm. apologize to Megan Fox for, you know, blaming her for being a beautiful person and being subject to gross and inappropriate behavior from men. And it kind of just went through the list. And, you know, we talked about this in, in our discussion of Jennifer's body that this yeah. that Jennifer's body yeah. has had a resurgence in in terms of the the sort of belovedness of, of the uh, horror community in large part because we've begun to say oh that film that we said was you know just Megan Fox being sexy that's actually more than that um, and she's more than that and so this film how incredible in '94 to be doing this as a white male writer director. And you know, I guess all that, it just really shows that because Wes Craven has a really close relationship with the, with particular, the people who worked on these films and he really was connected with them. And it comes from just like, I guess, listening to your act, your lead actress and just believing her experience that she had in a time in which no one else was really taking this seriously. If anything, it was kind of just like 
it either ignored just wasn't like an open secret or she was kind of made fun of and just like dismissed and so it would i must have been a profoundly powerful thing yes. to just like have someone listen to listen to her and then display that and put that on the film and be like no 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 this is a horror you were right to take to to be upset by what has happened to you i've i've yet to stumble across anything that has said, you know, we we have held him up as this super big thing, but now that he's died, we need to talk about how he was this gross, icky person. And we've been having a lot of those, ep- of quote, epiphanies lately. But everything that I've read about Craven really, like you said, speaks to the fact that, that he was respectful and he was smart and he had a vision, but also he cared about the people he was working with. And, and I think he really cares about the people and he cares about what he's working on because he has been a person who has been accused of like be pushing the line, going too far. From the very beginning, when in the 70s he made Last House on the left, he was hit with censors wanting yeah. to kind of like be, say like, no, you cannot display that on screen. Which it is a traumatic film, so. Yeah, and he, but he defended it as saying it was necessary to display on the screen. And I think he really comes back and you really see Craven's viewpoint on why horror articulated in here. It's because you put the thing, the evil on the screen so that people can see it and don't do it themselves in the world. And I watched an interview with Craven where he actually relates this back. He's like, if you're trying to censor this now, you should really also make sure you go back and censor everything from Greek mythology on onward, because these stories of evil and why we and the horror and why bad things happen have been used since the dawn of time, since Greek mythology in these texts that we teach to explain and justify the world around us. And he's like, to not put them on the screen it means that they have to take place in the real world and no one can be aware that they're happening. And I buy that argument by and large. I think ultimately in order to make that argument in this film, he does bash on Nightmare 6, Freddy's Dead, <laughs> a little too much because he's just like, that is so, and it's, it is the opposite of what he believes. He doesn't believe that you can kill that evil. You can't put it out. You can't just end it. But it, I mean, that director also clearly was just doing the best she could to make a film. Yeah. And, and so I'm like, okay, come on, Craven. You didn't have to like, take it out on her she worked with you too through all of these other films yeah he wasn't quite as terrible as he could have been but you were absolutely correct that that you cannot walk away from this film and be like i'm pretty sure wes craven liked all the other nightmares in between because it's just very clear that that he doesn't in part because his vision like you said uh, is about sort of this this continual evil that we have to sort of ritualistically suppress or um, temporarily destroy, but that has the power through storytelling to always return. I do want to say, though, that as a viewer, I find this film much more satisfying having come after Freddy's Dead than if it had come sort of when Craven originally wanted it to appear, which was much, much earlier. Right. He he pitched something very, very similar for the third Nightmare film. He wanted to do, he was like, we got to bring Freddy back to be more real and scary and take it seriously. And he had some kind of idea to do a meta deconstruction of it, but the studio shot him down. And so then he was like, well, then I don't want to direct that. I'll just do, I'll help with the writing. And thus we got Dream Warriors. And then only after these other films, or was he able to make this film? And I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that this film would have worked without 
seeing what happens if you let the horror die off or let the or delude the horror and not take it as seriously anymore just make a mockery of it from the start this was a sort of beloved franchise as is evidenced by the fact that in a 10-year span we have seven movies coming out which is wild but the thing that i think this film also relies on is the need for us to be able to understand what it's like to have a a certain horror figure be an icon because there's a lot of lines where like the nurse is like did you let him watch your films and she's like every child knows who freddy is Mm -hmm. he's like santa or king kong yes those i those three that holy trinity that uh heather establishes there is an interesting one freddy santa and king kong it really is what is it about the those three that like feels like it's such an uh interesting but perhaps necessary pairing i think it's just the mythical status of them they're all larger than life otherworldly figures um that are very simple, I think, to understand to children because Freddy is just like pure evil, Kong is giant monkey man, and Santa gives the little presents and the magical way all around the world. So I see there's some like connection there. I think it makes sense. It's a great line. I think it's a, a fantastic line too, because of course Santa, you know, there's there's the idea that there are certain lies we tell our children, right, that are acceptable. Yeah. So again, it kind of goes back to like, what is an acceptable form of evil right where where is that line and boundary and of course with king kong even in our earliest versions there's a tension uh on who's the real monster what's the real danger because it's clearly yeah it's a that's a that's a great because it's clearly also about like we is king kong is just about racism why we racism is allowed to exist and we don't we don't you want me to not tell our children about that just because it's inconvenient for you and it's scary which is a Wow. Exactly. That's a good line, Craven. Really good line. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And and I think it's a great, in part because I think Craven is just a, mm-hmm. a witty writer. Plain and simple. Died. But also, he has a knack for giving us the character development mm-hmm. we need. I don't think anyone's going to look at a new nightmare and be like, you know, this is an incredible buildings Roman coming of age. You know, I mean, they're not going to get snutty with it. I don't think they can, but especially compared to, to the last film, which as you pointed out, literally asks us to care about a John Doe. Yeah. You know, in, in this film, we are seeing characters that are, are more developed even if it's sort of by by understanding the rest of the the films or understanding who Robert England mm-hmm. is in real life and and things like that, so there's just such an effective way in which even even the babysitter character yeah. feels developed because we see her caring for Heather's son. I mean, there's just so many interesting yeah, layers at work. Julie here. Julie is a good character, even if they are like a very they're very simple. And they're they're clearly an homage to the like Tina Gray character from the original Nightmare, which is yet another way in which it's kind of cool to see one element from the from another from the beginning of the franchise kind of readapted into a new way in a new way that feels fun and interesting while bringing its own thing because she's a fun character in and of herself. Loved her style. Everyone in this costume had great co- great costumes. They all look so sexy. Such good costume design. That's so fun. I, <laughs> um, 
That's hysterical. And not only is she, I think, an homage to Tina, she's an homage to Alice, right? Yes. She has the long blonde hair. I almost she's a expected, mother figure. I almost expected Alice to show up. And I, to just, like, give... And when we were having all those conversations, like the John Saxton, Heather, the Robert, Heather, Craven, uh, Heather, I really thought we were going to get, like, the two final girl talk. Yeah, I was kind of hoping we would. Right before the third act. I would have liked to have seen that. I would have also liked to have seen uh, a cameo by Johnny Depp, but I read somewhere that that Craven was too nervous to ask. Yeah. And, That's hysterical. But then they met each, they saw each other at the premiere of New Nightmare and Johnny Depp told Craven that if he had asked, he would have been happy to do it. So it's like, what could have yeah. been, what yeah, could have I know, been. Yeah, I that would have been interesting. I want to go back to, to what you said about that, the homage to Tina though, mm-hmm. because there is a really interesting choice in costuming that I think also reinforced that. So in the opening sequence, which we discover is a dream, but it's it's Heather on set getting ready to, to play Nancy again. Yep. She's wearing um, what is often more traditionally coded as like uh, male pajamas, right? It's the like button down top and the long pants. And it's white with a, a red um, trim on it. But it, it does kind of have that more, not masculine feel, but that more androgynous feel that, that a lot of uh, scholars on Final Girls talk about being a necessary part of the Final Girl, right? That they're yeah. not distinctly feminine, they're not distinctly masculine, so that everyone is, is able to sort of identify with that character. Mm-hmm. But when Heather wakes up from the nightmare and, and it's the earthquake, she's wearing a nightgown that looks almost identical to the one that Tina's wearing when she's having her dream sequence and there she's in the tunnel, right? It's um, largely see-through. It's more, it's much more feminine, right? Because it's, it's more of that like dress sheath type nightgown. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that even just there illustrates how much attention was given to helping us as the audience craft and understand the the diegetic world of, uh, so the story world of the nightmare on elm street films and then what's the quote non-diegetic world right which is still diegetic because it's all fictional right but the uh the world of heather in which the nightmare franchise is real right so quote the real world that we're living in and and there's just like that's such a little thing but it does such a good job of of building continuity but also drawing attention to what it means when Wes Craven asks Heather to play the role one more time. Mm-hmm. Because it is like, it is donning armor. And it is, as you said, having to, to remember what it means to be a final girl, which means to be broken by the end, but mm-hmm. to have nevertheless managed to defeat the, the great evil. And I think it also acknowledges the superficial qualities of playing a final girl. And the superficial idea of the final girl, because in scholarship, we love to like, oh, to categorize things and simplify things so that you can kind of like make it as general as possible and fit as many things into that category. And we've done that with the final girl. We've categorized it really finely in film and media and books and how how it's portrayed. But that's not necessarily real. It doesn't, it's a trope. It's the analyses of a trope. It's not a real thing. And this film is like, yeah, it's definitely not real. It's clearly all artifice. I love that there is that distinct separation between the androgynous Heather that is in the filmed version and comes back in that third act as well. And the feminine Heather that exists in reality that has to grapple with playing this oversimplified trope 
of the final girl. Not that there's anything wrong with this trope and that there's, or that there's anything wrong with being androgynous or anything wrong with being feminine inherently. They're just different things. Yes. And I think part of what you're hinting at and, and part of what you are saying is, is problematic is, is not being those things or having those things present in a text. It's using that as a, as a sloppy shorthand or as a lazy shorthand and just being like, oh, well, it's the final girl. So I guess we'll just, you know, instead of really carefully thinking about things. And if we extend this further, and I don't know how much of this Craven had thought about versus how much, you know, this is me reading into, again, this this trailblazer of a text. Mm -hmm. But this film is also asking us to think about the difference between a a final girl and a surviving woman. Yeah. Because so much, that scene that's so interesting when um, Heather is talking with John Saxon, and it's there at the end, and he says, you know, he calls her Nancy, which reminded me of the podcast episode when I kept mixing up Heather and Nancy's name. So I was like, uh-huh. uh And then she says, why did you call me Nancy? And he's like, well, why are you calling me John? And then he's like, you know, and, and then he, we see that he has the badge and he's about to go into the, this is the police vehicle. And she says, you know, love you too, daddy. We're reminded that Nancy is, is a child, a child who is, who is denied agency by the very forces that should be equipping her with strength rather than teaching her to protect herself, her parents, either literally put bars on her windows and lock her in um, mm -hmm. or they kill the big bad so she doesn't have to encounter him. On the other hand, in this film, the reason that, that Heather is able to become Nancy again is because she says, I am a mother, I am an adult, and I'm a woman, and these are my strengths. And I think that's just so interesting to see how we can and need to be transitioning our final girl into, into the survivor woman. And I don't think that there's any other way that it could have happened because at this point, this Heather, Heather has played this character twice already and they have been, they were broken in the first one and attempted to be broken in the third one and kind of broken again in the third and one. And there was that, and there was that weird patriarchy in yeah, the third one, the, right? Like that father figure where she was too old to ugh. Yeah, that that was kind of icky, but intentionally icky. So it, it makes sense. It makes it made for a really interesting narrative and discussion. But it makes sense that we have to see this. And it's a unique franchise to get to do this and examine it. We get to see someone much later go be forced to return to this character who has had to survive a lot. And they themselves as an individual have had to endure a lot. It's really interesting. Again, I think just like trauma narratives and horror are nothing new to any audience that is watching horror right now. Trauma narratives are all over horror texts. You can't, you can't watch a horror text without like falling into a horror about trauma nowadays. But that wasn't the case back in the 90s. So again, I just think it is so interesting, all of the elements that New Nightmare would basically kind of introduce to this genre for the first time. But it's just, I think, so ahead of its time. That because this film didn't do was didn't do super well when it came out. Its lowest nightmare movie at the box office wow. by a lot. It was kind of well received at the time, but not even that well received. And certainly not to make up for the box office. And I mean, as you, as a result, there wasn't another nightmare film for about like nine years. Which in a, 
at this rate for the past <laughs> 10 years they've been one almost one every year so not yes. getting a nightmare film for another nine years until the crossover with with the J- friday the 13th franchise is is a that's kind of a big deal but it's also a little i guess uh i'm glad it existed though i would not i'm glad west got to make exactly what he wanted to do what you're talking about is is the evolution of Heather and Nancy. That's really interesting, right? So in the first one, she says, you know, Daddy, I need your help. And he's like, okay, honey, see you later. Mm-hmm. Um, in the third one, she's like, romantic father figure, I need your help. And he's like, I'll try really hard. Um, but in both of those, you know, she she's, it's not until like the final minutes of the film that she's like, okay, well, I guess I'm doing this on my own. But in this one, her husband dies early and she goes to all the men in her life, right? Wes Craven and Robert England and John... Sexton, thank you. And they all fail her so very early. Or they say, I'll help, but I'm, I'm going to do it from afar by writing the script. And so I think in this one, she, we just see her, again, claiming her agency uh, much sooner. There, there are a couple of things that I think we lose. Um, we didn't have as many cool sort of practical effects as we could have. Yeah. And while I do appreciate this redesign of Freddy Krueger, I don't know if it actually is more scary. It kind of just looked a little bit more clunky to me. I liked a lot of the ideas, and I think ultimately it was still able to work independently of this film, but I am kind of glad that that Freddy design did not stick. Yes, yes. I also think that this film did manage to find what was increasingly my problem from, like, onward Mm -hmm. and that was this how much of the film are we going to dedicate to the main character trying to convince everyone that hey by the way there's someone haunting my dreams and remember how like all these people have dried in really spooky ways yeah i have an explanation for that that seemed to take so much of particularly five and six yeah oh my god yes and this film found a clever solution because the truth is is that anthony as much as I trust every word that you say, if you came to me and said, you know, um, in real life I'm being haunted by someone that is only in my dreams, I don't, I honestly don't know if in real life I'm going to believe you. And if I also said that that person was from a horror franchise that we were talking about, like if so I was like... then I'm not going to believe you at all. Yeah, that's right? ex- And of course, of course you wouldn't, which is, I think, that's a great testament to this film. You're absolutely right, that it's able to find a new way to make that narrative interesting and work. Yes, yes. because if I'm willing to believe that there's something weird going on with your dreams, which maybe I am. Sure. Let's say that that's a, let's say I believe that 10%. 20%. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to believe it at zero to 1% if you tell me, and it's Freddy Krueger. And so I think, again, there, there's a really great way in which this film found that solution. I also think that, that this is Heather Lankenkamp's best performance in the franchise. And honestly, it's the most challenging one that, that she would have had because, she, because yeah. playing yourself as the character that has been crafted for you, Absolutely. playing the Hands character down. that has defined you in the role that you have in the real world, right? That's a, that's yes. a big, big ask. But I think that she did a great job. Heather talked, she talked about that in some interviews, just about how like, it was such an intimidating role to take on, but how now looking back, she is so proud of the work that she did on it. And she's like, huh, it was the hardest role, but I think I did the best there. And I'm like, yes, you did, Heather. Yes, you did. You had it in you the whole time. Where was... <laughs> Where was this energy in Nightmare One? But I guess you just have to go through, 
she got the real world experience, unfortunately. I mean, the truth is, is that she was young, right? When, when Nightmare came out, the original, because we weren't quite always yet right. casting like 45 year olds to play 15 year olds. So, you know, she didn't have the, the experience in the world or, or in her craft. And then I just think also, you know, the, the narrative of, of Robert England, right? That, cause it's not that he isn't a nice guy, but the, the version of himself that he plays at cons and things like that is he's a nice guy. And so seeing him step into that role and admitting no matter how nice I might really be, this is the, yeah. this is the Robert England that I've also decided is forward facing. I, I really liked Robert England here. He's not in it a whole lot, but the parts that he, that he is in it, he's really good. And I, cause I, I like getting to see him having to slip in and out of the mask that he was, that he would have to play. Cause and to get, then getting to see him really talk to Heather and seeing that mask drop is almost as is almost as scary as any time he puts on Freddy because just this acknowledgement, I think it's a scary thing uh, that humans have to acknowledge is that people play different, many different roles. And but seeing those roles drop and people transition from one role to another is a scary thing. It's a scary thing to see. Even if it's normal. Yes. And it's also scary because it normalized or it showed this thing as being normal. That even with this super nice guy that the Robert England in A New Nightmare is, he still, and as does every male male character in, in her life, um, he still treats Heather like an object, right? So he's like, oh, yeah, we knew we would get a better uh, response out of you if we didn't tell you ahead of time. Uh, you know, what she, What can you do? And it's like, you could warn your, your colleague. Or the, the, she's like, hey, how come you didn't tell me, husband, after I told you about my explicit nightmares about this very thing that you've actually been working on this hand? Or Wes Craven's like, okay, well, I'll just keep writing and you do your part, which I'll do my super easy part. So we get to see that even with these characters that are being portrayed as benevolent, they're still operating in a system which takes advantage of young women. Yeah. That is, that's a very, very, very good point. Perhaps there's no better place to, to conclude our conversation than to talk about the conclusion of, of the film itself. Yeah. Because this is really, like, we're really getting deep into the, like, layers of meta-ness at this yeah, point. Yeah, so they've, real, they're in the making of this film, kind of. Even though, obviously, they have been making this film the whole time. I, I think it's a really interesting choice to instead of break the fourth wall for the finale, like they've been doing the entire film, they put up another wall on top of the fourth wall. And so then the final finale is basically operating within a fifth wall to extend that metaphor. And I think it leads to a lot of really fascinating things. I, I love that in this sequence, they are able to bring back a lot of the silly elements of the nightmare franchise like the mud pits the long-armed freddy stretchy freddy mouth etc but because at this point the film has and these things have been recontextualized uh you have to take them seriously again for the first time and honestly you could argue i guess that those tonal shifts don't work and you may be right but i liked it i thought that i thought it was i thought it worked because i i have seen some people uh, discuss how it kind of comes out of nowhere to switch back into this more campy aesthetic 
But I also think it's because of that fifth wall that's been put up in the making of the film elements, the forcing back in of these moments of artifice. But the fact that they are able to take, make those artifice seriously and make them actually scary, I think was pretty effective. I thought it was great. So, you know, I'd never really thought about the tonal shifts before. And like you said, I think I can see the merit in that and maybe even be willing to agree that there is a, a very sharp uh, tonal shift. But for me, because from the beginning, we have uh, examples of how that's in much of our, our storytelling, like most of our fairy tales, right? So like at the Hansel and Gretel, uh, which is has explicit imagery right there at the, the end when we're in the, the final dream sequence. And they make explicit reference to that. I guess that's another one of those yes. types of stories that Wes Craven was talking about that we tell if you're going to censor and ban horror films and think that they are bad like they a conversation that is had in this film several several times by many characters then you also got to ban the witch story in which children burn this witch alive and in that story right it starts out they're like you know things were real dark they needed to get food they wander oh they see a happy house of candy but wait there's a witch and then it's like but wait now the witch is dead in a really intense scene and now they're gonna go home and everything's gonna be okay right this is the the sort of narrative pattern of much of our mythology and much of our fairy tales so i guess i didn't have a problem yeah yeah critics does that tonal shift not work probably not does that tonal shift not work for you you're gonna tell the grim fairy tales yeah. who i guess they they didn't write it they were just the, they were just the, the transcribers the transcribers but whatever you know what i mean i do so if you have a problem <laughs> with this go back and talk to the grim brothers <laughs> and there is also that very end very very end when they're back and they're she's reading the script that he's finished oh wait you're gonna skip right over all of the uh explicitly judeo-christian imagery that happens in the third act that would totally confirm your theory <laughs> that freddie is a christ-like figure you're just gonna skip you know, over all of that i i was in part because i felt like i had already met my my quota for the week of uh sacrilegious comments because i i, I said <laughs> in another context that roy batty and blade runner is also a christ-like figure but you're absolutely right i mean why there isn't a paper on this i don't know maybe it's because it's being written someday by you and me i guess so but but it's so interesting because of everything ritual right what is or is not um performative versus actual who is and is not the person that can save us because even though freddie is responsible for the deaths of like everyone heather loves he also liberates her in some ways right he demands a sacrifice uh, mm -hmm. But then he gives her this gift of, of being her truest self. So, yeah, we could talk probably about that. Was there a specific moment that you were like, I, ah. I just like loved all the, the, they really leaned into the snake from the Garden of Eden and then turns into that Satan-type-esque monster. But, and which does, by the way, I just like for anyone at home, that does confirm in this universe that the Judeo-Christian understanding of Satan and and the universe is correct. But that might be slightly too big a thing to unpack that they do confirm the existence of 
heaven, hell, and higher deities that directly do correspond with the real world religion. So yes, yeah, a lot I, to throw in there casually. Um. <laughs> yeah, but but so all of but I love but you're right. He does ultimately save them by being in the screen and being staying up on that by confining that to the screen. He is in the way their savior and save us all. So he does even in being this Satan thing that is a stand-in for the Christian understanding of the devil, he is still our savior because mm-hmm. you put that evil on the screen. And that I think then gets us into your, now I think, now that we've successfully uh, earned our spots <laughs> in hell, yeah, uh, much. I think we can go to the final so, looking at the screen the final minutes. So, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. Although now I'm going to feel probably guilty the rest of the day uh, because it, it speaks to, again, some of the tonal shifts that are happening that are just sort of hit on in those final minutes, because fortunately, Craven didn't choose the easiest option, which would have been to just have Heather and or Nancy wake up from a dream. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but we still have that extenuation of, like you said, that the fourth and like moving into fifth walls where we know it's a script. So we know that that Heather has been manipulated assisted controlled um up to this point by by the dreams that have been manifested in the script or maybe it's the other way around but in those final moments when when it's been quote defeated when freddie's been defeated and this her son is still asking her the lines that are directly from the script it really asks us again to kind of think about like which version can we count as as true as real and just like nightmare on elm street answers a lot of questions with yes and i think that Mm -hmm. a new nightmare returns us back to that model of yes and is this an affirmative text or a disaffirmative text yes and right um and those final moments show us that yeah because ultimately even the institutional critique the, the like the studios they kind of get the thesis right and that that studio exec says the fans god bless them are clamoring for more i guess evil never dies and the first part is clearly just like hollywood elitist gibberish which is like blame it on the fans they're the reason we have to exploit and make more money but the thesis of evil never dies that's actually the argument that wes craven is making in this film is that evil never dies and so you have to display it you have to keep showing it so we know what is what is bad we have to just do that so i think it's super interesting that because i was trying to put it into affirmative disaffirmative but just like the just like the best nightmare films it can't be categorized it refuses to be this is a great film that we've really enjoyed talking about and as always we would love to hear from you what are your thoughts about this film and and do you agree, particularly with, with that like sort of last claim that Anthony made that this is a film that refuses categorization, uh, and is that its its strength, uh, or is that uh, a challenge that that needs to be overcome? Because I think there's going to be people that that argue it both ways. Anthony, if people want to to communicate with us, how do they do so? Well, they should check us out on all of our social media links, which are in the description of this podcast we're very active on our social media so let us know what episodes you want to see in the future let us know what you liked what you agree with Um, just anything we are happy to hear it all and for our next episode where you can hear more discussion we're going to be switching to a newer more modern horror film we're going to be talking about 2014's the babadook so subscribe to our podcast today so you can join us for that discussion 
And is there anything else we want to leave our viewers, our listeners with? There is, but I feel like you deliver this line so much better than me, so I want you to say it. I'm flattered. I'm flattered. Well, thank you so much, and have a spooktacular day.